Poetry on Air with Sheboygan Poet Laureate Lisa Vihos. Hi, I'm Lisa Vihos, and this is Poetry on Air, a program of Mead Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. My guest today is Ed Werstein. Ed is a Milwaukee poet who's published two chapbooks and one full-length collection of his work, the most recent publication, Benediction and Baseball, from Fireweed Press. And he also has a new book that will be out soon from Water's Edge Press called Communique, Poems from the Headlines. I want to jump right in and have Ed share the first poem that he brought. It's a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the amazing beat poet who we lost at the end of February in 2021, at the age of 101. So tell us, what did you bring, Ed? Okay, I, I brought I brought along a poem, uh, seeing that it's uh, spring training season, I brought along a poem called uh, Baseball Canto, which is one of many of my favorite Fairlingley poems. Baseball Canto. Watching baseball, sitting in the sun, eating popcorn, rereading Ezra Pound and wishing Juan Marichal would hit a hole right through the Anglo-Saxon tradition in the first canto and demolish the barbarian invaders. When the San Francisco Giants take the field and everybody stands up to the national anthem with some Irish tenor's voice piped over the loudspeakers with all the players stuck dead in their places and the white umpires like Irish cops in their black suits and little black caps pressed over their hearts, standing straight and still like some funeral of a Blarney bartender and all facing east as if expecting some great white hope or the founding fathers to appear on the horizon like 1066 or 1776 or all that. Willie Mays appears instead in the bottom of the first and a roar goes up as he clouts the first one into the sun and takes off. Like a foot runner from Thebes, the ball is lost in the sun and maidens wail after him, but he keeps running through the Anglo-Saxon epic and Tito Fuentes comes up looking like a bullfighter in his tight pants and small pointed shoes and the right field bleachers go mad with Chicanos and Blacks and Brooklyn beer drinkers. Sweet Tito, sock it to him, sweet Tito. And sweet Tito puts his foot in the bucket and smacks one that doesn't come back at all and flees around the bases like he's escaping from the United Fruit Company. And the gringo dollar beats out the pound and sweet Tito beats it out like he's beating out usury, not to mention fascism and anti-Semitism. And Juan Marichal comes up and the Chicano bleachers go loco again as Juan belts the first fastball out of sight and rounds first and keeps going and rounds second and rounds third and keeps going and hits paydirt to the roars of the grungy populace as some nut presses the backstage panic button for the tape recorded national anthem again to save the situation. But he don't stop nobody this time in the revolution round the loaded white bases 
in this last of the great Anglo-Saxon epics in the Territorio Libre de Baseball. Wow. What drew you to this poem originally, Ed? Well, for, for one thing, like I think many poets of my age, we were first introduced to Ferlinghetti through finding the book, uh, Coney Island of the Mind. I think Coney Island of the Mind is still the most purchased uh, book of American po poetry in, no in history. So there's, so there's that. And I've been a baseball fan since I was about five years old. Okay. So when I found this poem, it was, um, you know, just like, oh yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's saying so much to me about uh, the, the social situation that I feel called to make some mark on for whatever reason. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there is so much in the poem about all kinds of different things. I mean, I had to look some, some things up and I could understand a little bit, even just to get a little background on like right at the beginning that he's reading Ezra Pound, you know, what, what's Ezra Pound doing in this poem? <laughs> well, what the reference to Ezra Pound comes from is that Ezra was famous or infamous for uh, being uh, a supporter of uh, Nazi Germany for okay. a while back in the 40s. And Ferlinghetti certainly wanted to um, make a sideways comment about that in in this poem, which he does several times. Uh, later on, he refers to it as the dollar beating out the pound. Yes. And, uh, you know, several other references. So. Yes. And then the reference to the United Company, which was notorious, right, for being very economically colonizing in, in Central America and really doing some harm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Neruda writes about the United Fruit Company in several of his poems, and many South American and Central American poets have, you know, commented on the, the notorious nature of the United Fruit Company. They epitomized U.S. imperialism for, for a long time. Yeah. And in some ways they still do, although they're pretty much history now. Yeah. Well, so it kind of raises the question for me, what do you see as the relationship between poetry and social issues? Well, as William Carlos Williams famously said in a poem called Asphodel, that greeny flower, he says, uh, it's difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for the lack of what is found there. And you you can take that statement in a number of different ways. I mean, for for mm -hmm. one thing, he may just be saying read mo more poetry because you need it. But th the other mm -hmm. the other thing you could do is you could kind of turn turn it around and say maybe he was asking for more news to be reported through poetry, and that's kind of how like I've taken it since I started writing more regularly twelve or thirteen years ago. I mean, I knew. Uh, my voice wasn't developed at all then. I feel like now mm -hmm. I, I have, you know, I'm writing in the voice that I wanted to cultivate from the start. But, uh, you know, hopefully I approach that a little bit. We'll, we'll see as time goes on. 
Well, do you want to say anything else about, about the baseball canto poem? Any other things about it that were especially, uh, I don't know, that grabbed you, that you love about the poem? Yeah, there, there's so much in there that, that speaks to me about how poetry, a beautiful poem about baseball, can also mm. address uh, in a serious way. Uh, you know, what's going on in America and what was going on. The poem was written in 1972, okay. which I, I had kind of guessed around 1970 because of who are the baseball sure. stars of, yeah. the, of the poem. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think of what he, he addresses, the, he addresses the, the national anthem. He makes reference to the whiteness of baseball, which uh, for... Uh, a century was closed off yeah. to players of color. Yeah. And so that and, you know, the, and a lot of other things, but yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of what, what I really like about that poem. Yeah. What do you think in the last line, what do you think he means when he says in the Territorio Libre of baseball? Well, what do you think that means? What does that mean? Oh, um, I, I think it's, kind of a, a vision on his part that, mm. you know, in, in 1947, you know, baseball embraced, uh, you know, the, the, they broke the color barrier with Jackie Robinson uh, being allowed to play. Mm -hmm. And that ever since then, there has been more and, and more, um, I mean, right now, Central and Caribbean and Northern players from South America, like Venezuela, and so mm -hmm. on. Those players are, are dominating baseball right now. And, and I think he kind of saw what what baseball could be in terms of diversity and inclusion. And he celebrates yeah. that in this poem with the, uh, with the, uh, you know, the bleacher bumps, uh, you know, cheering and you know, all, all that. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. For, for some reason, one of my favorite lines is when he's talking about Willie Mays and he says, and he takes off like a foot runner from Thebes. Something about that just kind of tickled me. I liked that. Oh, it's one of my favorite lines too. It's like a, a you know, a perfect description of, uh, you probably never saw Willie Mays play, but I did several yeah. times and uh, yeah, yeah. it's perfect. It's pretty cool. Let's, um, Let's move on to the second poem that you brought. Um, I'll let you tell us the poet and the name of the poem and then and read it for to us. All right. Um, the poem is, is by Denise Levertov, and it's called Goodbye to Tolerance. And it also was written about that same time, 1972. Goodbye to Tolerance. Genial poets, pink-faced, earnest wits, you have given the world some choice morsels, gobbets of language presented as one presents T-bone steak and cherries jubilee. Goodbye, goodbye. I don't care if I never taste your fine food again, neutral fellows, seers of every side. Tolerance, what crimes are committed in your name? And you, good woman, baker, good women, bakers of nicest bread, blood donors. Your crumbs choke me. I would not want a drop of your blood in me. It is pumped by weak hearts, perfect pulses that never falter, irresponsive to nightmare reality. 
It is my brothers, my sisters, whose blood spurts out and stops forever because you choose to believe it is not your business. Goodbye, goodbye. Your poems shut their little mouths. Your loaves grow moldy. A gulf has split the ground between us and you won't wave. You're looking another way. We shan't meet again unless you leave it, leaving behind you the cherished worms of your dispassion, your pallid ironies, your jovial, murderous, wry-humored, balanced judgment. Leap over, unbalanced? Then how our fanatic tears would flow and mingle for joy. Wow, that's another wow poem for me. Um, she seems to have an issue with certain kind of poets. What is she saying to you in this poem? Since I came into my own adulthood, which was around 1968 or 1969, I've been a fairly constant advocate against war and for peace. And of course, it all started with what was going on then, the opposition to the war in Vietnam. And I was reading a lot of poetry at the time, but not ever entertaining the idea that I could be a poet someday or would be a poet someday or, or that I even wanted to write. But when I read this poem, it like smacked me right in the face. It, 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 it said, this is what poetry can do in terms of what William Carlos Williams was talking about in terms of bringing the news through poetry to people. And so I think what she's saying is that uh, if you're if you're committed to peace, if you're committed to opposing the war, you can't sit on the fence in your artistic efforts. Your whatever you're doing artistically has to be a part of who you are, and that's what I've been trying to do. Like I said, since I started writing regularly in 2008 or 2009. That's wonderful. You, I, I feel like, no, as I know your work, I mean, I think you really hit that mark in, in your poetry. This is Lisa Vijos, and we're back with Poetry on Air. And my guest today is Milwaukee poet Ed Werstein. We've been talking about the poet's social responsibility in the world and about addressing current issues in the news. So in the second half of the show, Ed's, I've asked Ed to read some of his own poetry. And so go ahead, Ed. What's the first poem that you brought? Okay, I brought along a poem that's been uh, published uh, a couple of times. Uh, it was first published in 2011, on the uh, anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And it starts with an epigram. On December 14, 2010, more than 30 workers died and 100 were injured when they jumped from the upper floor windows to escape a garment factory fire in Dhaka, Bangladesh. The poem is called Teaching Women How to Fly. Your great-grandparents marched for safety, bread and roses, after the fire forced the women to jump from the windows at the Triangle Shirt Factory in New York City in 1911. Your grandparents fought and died for safety, bread and roses at Flint in 1937, held the GM factory for weeks to win their union. Your parents 
picketed time and again for safety, bread and roses to protect their unions in what has become the Rust Belt. And now women are flying again, falling from factory windows in Bangladesh, while you wait in lines at Walmart to buy the shirts they were sewing on the day before they died, died to make the owners richer, owners whose ancestors owned shirt factories in New York, owners who now are looking for other women in even poorer countries to teach them how to fly. That's, it's so powerful. What you did there for me is like this kind of cyclical, you know, these, these events that have occurred over time in terms of people protesting, people raising their voices, and yet these things that continue to happen, these injustices that continue to happen. How did it, how did it come to you to write the poem? What, what, I mean, was it seeing that event in 2010? Well, uh, just a brief little background for the 40 years that I spent working. I, I was for most of it in manufacturing and a union activist and struggled to bring democracy to the union I was active in. And that was one of the things I wanted to bring to my poetry an awareness of what labor unions have meant in America and what the flight of manufacturing from America to third world countries has meant for those people. So yeah, when I read that newspaper story, uh, that was like the, the, the seed for the poem, but it was, okay. a, it was a while, you know, coming to its finished uh, uh, iteration. Yeah. The phrase bread and roses, I actually Googled that this afternoon. I mean, I've heard it and I wasn't sure if I knew what it meant, but I, I looked it up and it was something that was said in the women's suffrage movement, bread and roses. Is that what you were, how you were well, familiar it, with that? No, it, it, well, uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but okay. as far as I know, it, it originated in, during a strike of a textile working women in Lawrence, Massachusetts in I believe 1912, it became a rallying cry mm -hmm. for, for labor in okay. the second decade of the, uh, of the last century. And so that's how I knew about it. Yeah, like the idea being that there should be enough money to have bread, but there should also be enough to have something beautiful, right? That you should have a wage it, that allows you to eat. Exactly, it, it goes, back to, it goes okay. back to that idea of, of incorporating art into your, you know, whatever message you're trying to bring. Right. Well, it's, it's a great poem. I've heard you read it several times and I always really appreciate it. So I'm glad you brought that one today. Um, I'm going to share a poem of mine that seems to resonate with yours. Um, it's called Speak. In the land of fake plenty, there's a road paved with money. If you're something enough, you can get on this road, but mostly you cannot unless you can pull yourself up on the straps of those boots they stole from you. Listen when the robot drones speak from two sides of their mouth. Do what you can to learn that language. Try our six-week, no-money-back, guaranteed language immersion experience. Time is running out. Send your firstborn child or give us your planet. We can work with you on this. Payment plans are available, but you must act now. Each day is an equivocation of that which they said they did not say the day before. Who can imagine? Look here, look there, look away, they say, and do not do what I would not do. 
or do it at your own risk. Advice is cheap. Money is expensive. Walls are being built as we speak. So thanks. That that's really <laughs> a that, no. That's really a good poem, and I, I uh, you know, Thank I you. like the way each poet brings their own voice to their own poetry, and uh, I, I I think it does resonate with the poem that that I read in mm -hmm. in your own inimitable way. You know, oh, I, I really like you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, let's have you read another one of the poems that you brought. Okay. As we'll discuss later, I've been working on a manuscript of poems that I write to the headlines. And yeah. this is this yeah. is a poem that, that I wrote to a headline. And the headline was in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel mm -hmm. uh, several years ago. And the headline was Fog versus Cancellation of the Milwaukee Air Show. If only it were that easy to stop a real bombing raid, mothers all over the world would pray for bad weather every day to spare their homes, their homelands, their children. But here on Milwaukee's lakefront, the spectacle is rescheduled for tomorrow. This roaring assault on eardrums and sensibilities is nothing compared to the price paid by others for the live ammo show, rain or shine. Here, parents bring the kids, wave flags, eat ice cream. Mm. That's that's a heart wrencher. I mean, it's like here we are watching, you know, an air show of warplanes, basically, right? And we can't watch it today because there's fog, exactly. but it'll come back tomorrow. And that's a privilege that nobody else in the world has. <laughs> I mean, right, right. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I over my apartment overlooks Lake Michigan uh, on, on Prospect Avenue. And so every mm -hmm. year the air show is like, you know, I want to get out of town because it's like the sonic booms just shake the whole building I'm in. And yeah, tens of thousands of people flock to the lakefront to watch this spectacle. And so that was the genesis of this poem it's like yeah. you know it, but what inconvenience am i spending compared to to the rest of the world who, who right. get this for real right it definitely it makes makes wakes us up and makes us think like what are we doing before we run out of time i would love for you to read the one of my favorite poems of yours that i asked you to bring so let's jump right into that one okay yeah, I, I'm I'm proud of this poem because it was published in Stoneboat, which you used to cool. edit. Meditation on my sandwich. The first thing I give attention to is that some farmer somewhere has planted rye, cultivated it, harvested that rye, transported it to a mill where it was ground into flour, transported it again to a breadsmith bakery right here in Milwaukee where it was fashioned into this bread, which means of course that other farmers have tended the cows and chickens that produce the butter and eggs that went into the bread. A van or truck driver delivered the bread to the neighborhood store where I shop. A stock person put it on a shelf, a sales clerk rang it up and a bagger handed it to me. So many workers played a role in my lunch and that's just the bread. Next, I consider the tuna, 
harvested in the Atlantic without harm to the innocent dolphins, the tuna's crime being its taste and nutritional value. It was shipped to a port, trucked to a cannery where it was filleted and canned, trucked again to a warehouse, and trucked again to the same neighborhood store where it was handled by the same stock people, clerks, and baggers. The mayonnaise made by my immigrant daughter-in-law reminds me of all the homemakers of Latin America and a time when things were made by hand and not machines. And speaking of immigrants, this spinach is from California. It's early spring here in Wisconsin. Immigrant harvesters, packagers, more truck drivers, all doing their part for this little lunch I eat while I watch the first freighter of the season pull into the port in Milwaukee. Containing perhaps part of a meal I'll eat next week. Farmers, harvesters, truckers, bakers, shippers, fishermen, cannery workers, packagers, stockers, and clerks all contributing to my sandwich. I wonder, do they earn enough to raise a family? Are they covered by health insurance? What do I owe them? What do we all owe them? Yeah, that's a great poem. I remember the day when you read it. I haven't looked at a sandwich the same way ever since. You, <laughs> Good. You opened my eyes. You know, before we wrap up today, I want to make sure to get in two things. I want you to, to tell us a little bit about the blog you're keeping. It's relatively new. And then tell us also about your new book that's coming up. Okay. Um, my, my website is my name, Ed Wurstein, all one word, dot com. And uh, if you go there and click on the blog button, you'll find that for the last 13 weeks, I've published something called uh, a favorite poem. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've posted poems of Ferlinghetti and, and uh, uh, you know, several other Neruda and, yes. and, and several of the others poets that I admire. So there's that. And, yeah. uh, you know, if, and I love it if, because you go and you tell a lot of, you give a lot of information about the poet and about sort of the history, sort of the, the context of the poem, you, which I love. So good work. I'm, I'm very impressed by what you're doing. Thank you. And, and the book, it's from Water's Edge Press, mm -hmm. which is also right there in Sheboygan. And yeah. uh, you, can, you can go to their website and uh, find out about the book. It's called Communique, uh, Poems Written from the Headlines. The book is organized kind of like a newspaper. You know, there's national news, weather, sports, you know, oh, the war report. Wonderful. There's even an obituary section, which which has a few obituaries in it. Uh -huh. uh, and I'll, prob I'll probably add one for, uh, for Ferlinghetti before the book oh, comes out. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to read it. And I just, it's just been so much fun to talk to you today. Thank you for, for doing this. Thank and you. Thank you for, for asking. Yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed it. Well, this has been Poetry on Air, a program of Mead Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. So again, I thank Ed Wurstein for being with us today. And I thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach me, Lisa Vihos, about the show, about anything you heard today or ideas for the future, you can reach me at poetlaureatesheboygan at gmail.com. You have been listening to Poetry on Air, hosted by Sheboygan's Poet Laureate, Lisa Vihos. 
Questions or comments can be directed to Lisa at poetlaureatesheboygan at gmail.com. Poetry on Air is produced in the studios at Reed Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. More information on the web at meadpl.org.